This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Salvania. Yes. Did you know that according to the Murder Accountability Project, which compiles data from the FBI's Uniform Crime Report, the state of California has the most unsolved homicides and basically cold cases, so Crimes that just go cold. The detectives are like, we've done everything we can. And there are actually around 41,000 cold cases in California just from the years 1980 to like the present. I'm so excited. Well, let's get into this cold case. Hey, everybody. Rom Crime does cold cases with a twist. Cold case style. I'm Vanya. I'm your co-host for Rom Crime. Yeah, one might say you're the... I'm the Rom. Yes, I'm the Rom because I like a lighter look on life. I romanticize things that probably shouldn't be romanticized. Yes, I am the Rom. R-O-M. That's right, Rom. And hi, everyone. I'm Avrin. I am your other co-host. And you would definitely call me the uh, crime. I've mm-hmm. seen like every episode of Forensic Files probably four times. So yeah, we're bringing you some romantic crimes up in here. That's right. And uh, today is going to be a doozy. It is, you know, I think like most of you guys have probably been with us for a few seasons here. If not, welcome. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> if this is your first one, I'm excited because we're doing something a little bit different than, we, than we've done before. Should we explain what we're doing today? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. We're going mm. through cold cases, which yes, that's been done. We know you've probably heard many podcasters and different do- and watched different documentaries. But this time yeah. we are compiling different podcasts that have covered it in- as well as in the future, probably documentaries, mm-hmm. articles, mm-hmm. books. We figured there's a million podcasts and documentaries out there on the crime that we're going to teach you or talk to you guys about, not teach you guys about. If you're listening to True Crime Podcast, you've probably heard of what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> but we're going to kind of bring to you all of the information that we got from various other podcasts that did it. We're going to compare and contrast. And then we're going to kind of tell you what we think based on all of the information that they found and the research that we did yep. um, on our own, like maybe what we think is going on here in That's terms right. of solving these cases. Sometimes I'm hesitant about the crimes, but this is where I like the puzzle. So today we're going to talk about the Ketty Cabin murders. And Vanya, do you want to just kind of give like a loose description of what happened? Can you do it, Rom? One thing I just want to start out by saying is with all this research, if you guys know this, this is a very brutal case. 
I went camping this week. And this happened the last time we went, I went camping. But I swear to God, my mind cannot get away from the murder, all of my research. So it, I was camping. I wasn't in a cabin, but like these cabin murders. But you were in the woods or in the out woods. in a, sleeping outside. Exactly. It was kind of scary. I felt like I was being watched, even though it was probably just a spider that I... I uh, killed right before. <laughs> it's probably the family looking inside going, she's gonna, I'm gonna get her. <laughs> but anyways, uh, yeah, no, Give you give us like a rundown on, on the Ketty Cabin murders. It happened in Northern California, as we sort of mentioned mm-hmm. in our intro there. Yes, it's, and it's, it's interesting because I guess it's like Central Northern California, which is considered quite different to say like a San Francisco or sure. like a Marin County, the, the, the towns and major cities along the ocean. So in Central California, it's definitely like smaller towns, mm. um, you know, lots of like maybe towns where like there's more transients and people just kind of moving through or like looking to get away from some stuff. Right. So in 1979, Sue Sharp was 36 years old. She had five children and she finally got out of a bad marriage, a marriage in which the husband is per- like reported to have not only abused her, but to have sexually abused her, their two daughters. Mm-hmm. So enough is enough. She packs the kids up and they make their way from the East Coast, Connecticut, mm-hmm. all the way to California. And they crash on couches, you know, with family along the way. And they finally settle down in a small, sleepy, former resort town called Ketty, California. And part of the reason they picked this town is because it's very close to a town called Quincy, where Sue's brother lived. So they wanted to be close to family. They end up moving into cabin 28, which is a fairly small cabin. Only two bedrooms. Remember, I said this is a mom with her five kids. Mm -hmm. Two bedrooms, but there was a basement. And they kind of settle in, and it becomes this wonderful little place for them. They've got the two youngest boys um, in the back room. That'll be Rick and Greg. Mom, Sue, and her two daughters, 14-year-old Sheila and 12-year-old Tina, they all share a room. And then her oldest son, um, John, actually moves into the finished basement on the property and like has a little separate suite down there. They make friends with all of the other families in the cabins. There's kids their own age. It just seems like they've finally found a place mm-hmm. they can call home. It's not a couch of a relative. It's their it's their own place, but it's temporary. Sue is a working mom. She's also in school trying to better herself to get more money. Know, a better job to yeah. provide more for her kids. And um, things are going really well for them in this, this new life of theirs until April 11th of 1981, which is about, like, I want to say five months after they moved into this cabin. So the day of April 11th was like a pretty normal day. All the kids had plans. Tina and Sheila went to hang out with the neighbors who lived in cabin 27, the Seabolts. Rich and Greg. Oh, and I'm sorry. I think I called him Rick, but I have Rich written it's down. Rick. I'm it's Rick. My... It's Rick. Yeah. So I wrote Rich all incorrectly up in my notes here. <laughs> Rick and Greg went to hang out with their friend Justin Smart, who lived in cabin 26. And then John Sharp was with his friend. So John was 15. He was with his 17-year-old friend, Dana Wingate, in the nearby town I mentioned before, Quincy. They were there for party, 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 party. It was the early 80s, you guys. Apparently, totally. you let your 15-year-old go to a different town to party. That's right. And his mom, Sue, was in. She was like, that's fine. Just don't hitchhike home. That's all I ask. Please, please don't hitchhike. And we still beg that of you guys today. If you're considering it, we ask you reconsider. So it's a pretty typical day, right? Um, As the evening comes kind of to an end, like early evening, the youngest boys, Rick and Greg, come home with their friend Justin Smart, who Sue had agreed to let spend the night that night. 
And then around 9.30 or so, Tina came home from the Seabolts, where Sheila stayed to spend the night. Tina had wanted to stay, but the older 14-year-old girls were like, no, girl, we need to get our teenage on. Like, you need to go home, which is going to be so sad in the end. Um, And then around the same time that Tina got home, so 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, John and Dana were seen in Quincy doing the one thing their mother, or his mother, John's mother, asked them not to. They were trying to hitchhike home. (laughs) So they would have been the two that arrived home latest that evening. Right. And then the next morning... I think it's important to know also that that outside suite was had no bathroom so they always kept the front door unlocked in this cabin 28 and i think most of the neighbors kept their doors unlocked as well yeah i think most of the people at this time in this town were like this is a safe town we're gonna get into whether or not that's debatable but um there wasn't the time where people were locking their doors Mm -hmm. but in this family's case they specifically purposefully left their door unlocked so that um john if he needed to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night or get a glass of water could just let himself in from the outside entrance because that was the only way to get in from the basement. It kind of reminds me of our Greenpoint apartments, like oh, the yeah. railroad ones where yeah. I used to have to walk through the hallway that was public to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night when <laughs> I was in that back room. That was my reality for a minute, so oh, I did it. Crazy. Although I just brought my keys with me, you know? Yeah. We didn't keep the door unlocked because we lived in New York City and we know better. Yeah. Um. So the next morning, rather early, Sheila heads home from cabin 27, just next door, and opens the door and everything changes forever. What she what she opens the door to is not just a murder scene. It is like a truly gruesome, like something out of a horror movie. There is blood covering every inch of this tiny cabin. She immediately recognizes her brother because he, his body is the first when you open the door in the room. She turns around, runs back to the Seabolts. That's the neighbors in cabin 27. Tells them what's going on. They contact the um, resort owners and the police. And then James Siebold, who's the father of the friend she was spending the night with, comes by. They go into the they peek into a window in the back room and they see those three young boys, um, Rick, Greg and Justin. And they're just sleeping. Right. Completely unharmed. So very wisely, they wake them up via the window and have them exit out the window. And then police describe the scene that they walked in on as like one of the cops even said like he couldn't believe that Sheila had seen this. Like how would she ever recover? That's how horrific it was. So I'm not going to get into too many details. But what you should know is that everybody who was murdered was um, bound with medical tape and electrical wiring. They um, were all bludgeoned with various weapons. There were multiple types of hammers used. And um, Sue Sharp was actually bludgeoned with, like, the butt of a BB gun. Um, Both John and Sue Sharp had been stabbed multiple times when their throats were slit. And Dana was kind of singularly murdered differently. So even though he was bludgeoned and bound, his manner of death was actually manual strangulation. Mm. And we can kind of talk about our thoughts on that. And then most importantly, I think of all of the things, other than it looks like it was kind of staged the way the bodies were kind of placed in the room. um, Sue was naked, was nude from the waist down. And not only was she bound like her hands and feet, but she had been gagged with a blue handkerchief and her own underwear, which they then taped over um, she was closest to the couch. Dana was between her and her son. And Dana, weirdly, a f- an interesting fact, because we are talking cold case, so we're going to try to kind of talk about who we think 
did this and why, um, his head had been placed on a pillow. They had physically removed a couch cushion and laid his head on it. So weird. After the fact. So that's the scene that's walked into. The boys are rescued. In all of the kind of craziness, about an hour goes by before Sheila realizes that her 12-year-old sister, Tina, is missing. They know she went home, but she's not there. Her body's not there. She's not a survivor, and she's not a victim at this point. So now we've got a missing child, and the FBI is called in. Everything gets fucked up by the cops. Excuse my language. After about two weeks, the FBI hasn't made any headway, so they kind of just, like, hand it back to the Ketty Sheriff's Department. And the case pretty much goes cold after less than a year's worth of investigation. I'm not going to get into the details of the investigation until we start comparing and contrasting Mm -hmm. the podcasts. Mm -hmm. But that is the crime. And just so that you all out there know, to this day, uh, there have been no arrests and the murders of the, you know, Sue, John and Tina Sharp and Dana Wingate are still unsolved. And this happened in 1981. So it was April 11th. We basically just passed 40 years since this happened. So I think we get into uh, what we learned from these varying other podcasts and documentaries we we studied from well one of the one of the ones we researched was Jensen and Holes the Murder Squad which these guys are really fun to follow because they really go into the details. Yeah, Paul Holes is like he was one of the prominent um, characters on the documentary I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and but he's a forensic like he's a detective. Yeah, he is a retired detective who, before he was a detective, worked in like the forensic lab. Yeah. So he was first like the DNA guy, and then left doing that to become an actual detective. He's now retired, but still as a consultant for a many cold cases. Mm-hmm. And Billy Jensen's a true crime writer and fellow KU Jayhawker, if oh, you're listening to Billy Jensen. Rock Chalk Jayhawk. I learned <laughs> that from actually listening to one of their episodes where I was like, get out of town. It's not just a Michelle <laughs> McNamara connection. Yeah. But he helped kind of ghost write her book after she passed away. And then mm-hmm. he is like a pretty well-known true crime writer and um, journalist. Yeah. So he's featured in so many different, you know, documentaries and podcasts and but yeah. theirs is great and theirs was i will say i think we lay out the three that we did so we can bounce yep, around great theirs was definitely i think like the most in terms of like research mm-hmm. like concrete from a policeman's brain research exactly but we also did the penultimate comedy true crime podcast my favorite murder mm-hmm. with karen and georgia they covered that and then vanya found another great podcast called morbid hosted by Two ladies named Ashley and Elena, and they also covered it. And each one of them had the same basic information, but definitely brought different information Mm -hmm. that the other ones never mentioned or forgot about or didn't know about. So we thought we'd use everything we learned. That's right. And we also watched, uh, it's a documentary on... Um, ID Discovery, I think, and it's People Magazine Investigates is what it's called. It was season one, episode five, Cabin 28, Horror in the Woods, which again, they had a lot of similarities in what we are going to talk about, but some different uh, angles as well, where I was like, I'm like, how the heck did they come up with that? Yeah, there's that's, I think, why this case is one that fascinates so many people. One of the things that the My Favorite Murder podcast talked about over and over again was how Reddit and a thread of like Reddit armchair detectives single-handedly kind of revived the Plumas County, that would be the sheriff's department for Ketty, California, like kind of 
bullied them into reopening the case because they were like, we'll do it if you won't. We'll learn that it's a little more complicated than that. But, um, you know, there is a lot of people that are fascinated by this and why can't they solve this, especially when we get into the investigation and how it feels like maybe they could have solved it and just didn't. That's right. I thought it was really interesting when in Jensen and Holes, when they talk about um, Sue Sharp's body was actually covered with a bloody blanket. And Paul Holes talks about how normally when that happens, it's has to do, there has to be a relationship between the person who usually it's either something, somebody who had a relationship or the person, the killer thinks there was a relationship of some kind involved. So in his mind, he says that it appears that it would be somebody they knew. Right. And they also say on Jensen and Holes, and I think the, I believe actually most of the other ones that we listened to and or watched that it it seems likely that there was more than one killer. Yes. Because how do you subdue, you know, a grown woman and then two practically grown teenage boys like that it would take more than one person. Also, the the number of um, weapons used in the murders, like multiple hammers, multiple knives, a BB gun, like one person doesn't come in right. to commit a murder. And have like, I'm going to bring three knives and two hammers and a BB gun and and all of this electrical wiring and medical tape. So one of the things I love the most about Jensen and Holes is the way they break it down. So I thought we'd try to kind of share the information in a similar fashion. Mm -hmm. So first we talk about motive, right? So when you when you see a crime scene like this, as you mentioned, it doesn't seem likely that it was a stranger. Right. It doesn't seem likely that it was one person. But what could the motives be based on what you can glean from the crime scene? So even though the detectives say that regardless of the fact that she was nude from the race down, that there does, there's no apparent sexual assault. That's right. What, the fu- what does that even mean? There's no apparent sexual assault. So you can't tell, but you also can't completely rule it out or you can't you cannot rule out that it was a sexually motivated assault. Because exactly. as we mentioned before, John and Dana came home last so maybe a sexual assault was in progress they came in and that's when everything shifted into oh god now we gotta get rid of the witnesses and this woman Mm -hmm. you know that's what it seems like Mm -hmm. there's also per jensen and holtz's podcast uh dana the non-family member who was murdered was kind of known as a bit of a troublemaker like to party like to do drugs and so police had to investigate whether or not there was some kind of a drug angle there they also suggested that maybe sue knew something this was in the morbid podcast and mm-hmm. the my favorite murder podcast that she maybe either had heard something she hadn't because it turns out, you guys, there's like a lot of drug dealers in Caddy, California. There's a lot of drug pushers. A Apparently lot of, there like, was in the 80s. Mob stuff. Yeah. Going on. And so there was that this idea that maybe she had seen or heard or knew something that she shouldn't have. So this was kind of like a hit. However, I don't know, Vanya, I know you try not to spend too much time thinking about murdery stuff, but... Like, I don't see hitmen being like, let me bludgeon, strangle, stab, slash, bound. Like, wouldn't you just like a bullet in the head and walk away? Right, exactly. I think you're right. I think the way that it happened, the brutality that they talk about, they were saying that there was a knife that was bent, you know. It was was slammed so hard into the wall through somebody or whatever. And there was like stabbing in the wall too. It bent. So that's just like this rage. Where is that coming from? That doesn't seem like a hit. Usually a hitman was just going to is going to get in and get out. Right. And it's not personal for them. It's a job. Whereas this, everything about this crime scene suggests. Exactly. It's personal. So a couple of suspects emerge kind of right away based on 
possible motives. And that happens to be a neighbor of the Sharp families, actually the the man who lives in cabin 26, who is the stepdad to Justin, the kid that was spending the night with the Sharp boys in the back room. His name is Marty Sharp. And there were rumors going around that he was having an affair with Sue Sharp. Right. There was also um, not a rumor. I believe it was Marty's ex-wife, Marilyn, who even said that she... Sue had counseled her to leave Marty because he was abusive and he was a bad husband. Um, But she had actually told her to leave him and that he found out about it. And so he was very angry. And then also it was like a well-known fact that Marty Sharp did not like John Sharp, like just really didn't like that kid. Just irked him. Um, Also at the time of the murders, the, um, Smart family in cabin 26, they had a house guest, a gentleman named John Bow. I never heard anyone pronounce this the same, so I want to pronounce it the way I like to say it. <laughs> Boobaday. Boobaday. Bo Boobaday. Boobaday. I heard like boobied or boobed, and I was like, it's Boobaday. Yeah. I know there's no like weird um, accents over any of the E's, but it's John Bow. Uh, Boobaday, and I think we'll just call him Bo for e- to make this easy. So he was actually a fellow VA. That's it. Well, you know where they met in a mental uh, veterans hospital. That's what the People Magazine investigates was talking about. They met in a in a mental hospital together, and when they were released, that's when Marty said to Bo, "Hey, come, you can stay on my couch." Right. So they had recently been released from a mental hospital. And were roomies. And then another thing that was circulating around the camp was that Bo, while being a house guest in Cabin 26, had developed quite the crush on Sue. And that we definitely get from the Jensen and Holes podcast. Yeah. I feel like that was the only podcast that mentioned that. But that he had, per Marilyn, come on to Sue like numerous times, asked her out on dates, was hitting on her on the time, and she was just like not interested. Yeah. So when you talk about... The motives here, a sexual assault, is that a beau being like, you know what? I'm not taking no for an answer. You can say no all you want, but I'm going to come in your house and just do what I want to do. He's interrupted by the sons. Murder happens. There's the potential love triangle slash convincing his wife to leave him. so that Because she just got out of a very violent situation herself. And also something that I did think was interesting because they kept saying it was alleged, um, you know, sexual abuse of her husband who she was running from in Connecticut. And in also in the People magazine investigates, Sheila is being interviewed. The uh, Was she 15, 14 at the time? 14. And she said her father did abuse her and her sister Tina. And that's why they were running. So I... I just thought that was interesting. Right. So we know that's true. And that would make sense then that Sue would counsel Marilyn. Exactly. Who was in an abusive relationship right. to not just leave him. But what I heard in, I believe, the People Magazine doc and the Jensen and Holes podcast for sure was that she didn't just say leave him. She said, you need to get your kids and you need to leave town. Like, right. Basically do what she did, like get as far away as you can. And so if that's true. And he was and known was to taking, be violent and angry. Especially when he drank. Exactly. Yeah. So if that's true, then of course, you know, that gives him motive. That gives him a great deal of rage and anger towards Sue Sharp for advising his wife to do that. And as we will learn, there was definitely some drinking going on mm-hmm. between Marty and Bo the night that these murders took place. 
Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's get into that. So one of the things that everything kind of mentions is that evening, Marilyn, Marty, and Bo all went to like the local bar in Kenny. Yeah, Ketty's back door. I love it. Amazing. So super dive bar. They go in there for some drinks. And apparently, Marty hates the music. And I learned this from my favorite murders podcast or Morbid. Or both, but he had ch- they had start they had changed the music from country music, which Marty was totally feeling, to rock music, and he was pissed. So they left. That's right. Then when they then when they get home, Marty at some point makes a phone call to the bar's manager, saying like, "Oh, they left, dude, because you switched the music to that stupid rock music." Complains about it, and then Marilyn says at some point in the evening, while she chooses to go to bed, the two. Um, men decide to go back to the bar and they are alibied by all of the people in the bar for going back because they showed up in three-piece suits and sunglasses in the middle of the night at like one o'clock in the morning they come back to the bar that they had angrily left and now they're donning three-piece suits and they're wearing their sunglasses at night weird for me Yvonne that just sounds like two people that know that they need to be memorable absolutely like it's a dive bar it's you know the fact that that they went back in and they had done like a costume change and an inappropriate one for the location they were in. That to me is like, we need to establish an alibi. That's right. Oh, and also in the Morbid podcast, they talk about how he's sitting there at the bar. Bo Bo Bobody is sitting there and I, Marilyn hears him say, or, or a bystander hears him say, I feel like killing somebody tonight. Right. So these are clearly angry, drunk men that maybe aren't completely stable. So they become prime suspects per every single podcast and documentary and article that we may have looked at. However, after both men are brought in and interviewed together, which as we learned from Jensen and Holes, is um, not how you do it. You do not have two people that are main suspects in a, a, at this time, a, a triple homicide plus a missing girl. You separate them and see if their stories line up. But turns out Marty Sharp is good friends with the sheriff, Doug Thomas, Sheriff Doug Thomas. So they're interviewed together. They're BFFs. They're they're not asked to give written statements where maybe their stories would differ about what their evening was like. And then they give them polygraphs. They both pass and they are both cleared as suspects and free to go about their lives, in which case um, both of them leave town pretty fast. The next day they leave town. They go to Nevada. They're like, bye, we're getting out of here. What? They're not looked at again by the Plumas County Sheriff's Department until way way later first of all that's so effed up but apparently as we mentioned that we learned in my favorite murder the town of ketty was full of transients and criminals and i guess like the police department there or the sheriff's department for plumas county was also known to be corrupt a fact um that they brought in the organized crime unit instead of the homicide unit Mm -hmm. to investigate this crime is not only like confusing because it's a homicide it's not it's not a known mob where the someone like came in and killed a bunch of mobsters it's a homicide of a woman and you know her family basically so that in and of itself is strange then after the case has kind of gone cold so they've let marty and Bo just you know you guys are cleared whatever it's cool three years later on april 22nd 1984 so almost like three years to the date because this happened on april 11th a young guy named ronald padrini was collecting recyclables in feather falls butte county which is over 60 miles away from ketty which is a fact that every podcast got incorrect i heard like 23 miles right seven miles <laughs> that's right per um 
Well, I guess maybe I'm wrong, too. Maybe they're right. But it says over 60 miles away from Ketty. While collecting recyclables, he made a horrifying discovery. He found a human skull alongside a child's blanket, a blue jacket, Levi jeans, and an empty surgical slash medical tape dispenser. So Ronald calls police. Police begin the investigation into determining who this skull belongs to, right? And shortly after the discovery happened, police had not released publicly any of the details other than that a skull had been found and that it looked like it belonged to a child. They even said that they believed it was a male child. They receive an anonymous call that said, remember those Ketty murders a few years back and there was a girl who went missing and they never found her? I bet that's who the skull belongs to. Click. And turns out that's exactly who the skull belonged to. That was the skull of of Tina Sharp. And this anonymous call is is never like, followed up with, never investigated. They never try to figure out like, hey, why'd you think that? And how did you know right. about the other um, objects found with the skull? They just like take that, the tape and seal it and put it in, in the- an envelope and throw it in a box of That's evidence right. and don't bother to look at it again, which again, to me screams- Something is fishy. Maybe a cover up, right? And so here's something I wanted to talk to you about, Vanya, because I thought this was so interesting and so potentially possible. So this is all from the people- magazine investigates documentary that we watched so this is the only thing that we watched that suggests that Bo Boobaday was was um definitely known to have had connections in chicago to organized crime and that possibly he was in witness protection mm-hmm. as a witness for like the fbi who was also brought in and then abruptly was like eh, i can't help you small town sheriff with this missing girl case pass it back to you but that he was a witness which basically meant that whatever case they needed him for to testify against mobsters they somehow considered more important than this family that were brutally horribly murdered because they could not out his you know if he did this or if he was engaged or participated in any way shape or form with this homicide then he would be his cover would be blown Mm -hmm. he would be you know he wouldn't be able to testify for them and that somehow that would explain a cover-up and i kind of i buy that a little i feel like that makes a lot of sense because they didn't call homicide like sacramento's homicide they called the organized crime unit that which by the way was known to be corrupt at the time in the 80s i also think this is interesting only a couple weeks after the ketty murders just a couple weeks marty smart he was in a va hospital and this So this information didn't come out into the public until 2016, but this happened only a couple weeks after. And the police did have this stuff. This is, Right, exactly. Right. So this is a counselor at the Veterans Administration in Reno came forward with information concerning Smart, saying that he confessed in killing Sue and Tina, but not the boys. I just think it's really interesting because this actually came from an article in the Plumas County, like daily or whatever. They talk about how the... The counselor said, and actually the person quoting right now is Gamberg, which Mike Gamberg was a, is now a special investigator um, on the case of mm-hmm. uh, for the Ketty murders that has been reopened. Um, but he said that the counselor counselor said that he was completely cold, nothing callous while he's talking about Sue, but then got a little upset 
when talking about Tina. So the, so the counselor encouraged him to turn himself in and he just like smiled. And I don't think he realized that, um, that the counselor is like, you're obligated to go to the authorities when there's a murder. You can't, you can't right. c- confess to a murder to a psychologist. And, psychiatrist I can, or and psychologist. I'll keep it a, yeah. I'll keep it a secret for you. Yeah. But, but the crazy thing about this all is that this counselor comes forward. The powers that be call it hearsay. Yeah. Hearsay. They say it's not admissible and there's nothing they can do with hearsay. So they, they again, refuse to investigate. He passed his polygraph and that's hearsay. So we've got a counselor saying he confessed. We've got um, motive, opportunity, the strange like showing up at a bar in the middle of the night to create an alibi. And then we've got something else to implicate but- him, which would be... Oh, yes. I was just going to say, just to remind everyone that, you know, a polygraph is not admissible in court at all. Right. People pass them when they're lying and people fail them when they're not lying, you know, because it's all about like. And Paul Hull says that it's used more as like a tool to see how people react even before taking it or with whether they're willing or, you know. All the, yeah, all around. Yeah, it's to kind of gauge how people are kind of behaving around the idea of being put under a lie detector test. Because you can tell a lot about somebody that's like. Uh, I'm going to need a lawyer now. You know, when they were like, mm-hmm. I didn't do anything, man, before. Or, you know, you can also just see when people's like, it's all about kind of detecting yeah. spikes in people's like blood stress pressure, levels, yeah. stress levels, heartbeats per minute, all of that stuff. And it's not admissible in court because it is not um, concrete in any yeah. way, shape or form. So a failed polygraph is just as useless as a past one. Yeah. If everything else suggests that you need to look into these people. What is hearsay? Hearsay means that... It's unco- It's somebody coming forward and saying something, but there's no one who can corroborate that, right? So no one else can be like, yes, it's on video t- or it's on audio tape. I recorded it. Or someone else was in the room. Right. It's just this person's word against the person they're accusing. But again, this is a, it's, it's not, it doesn't mean you have to go out and arrest the guy. It just means that you have to investigate him. Right. And here's another interesting thing that would, that would maybe explain why. The boys in the back room didn't die. Let's get to that. Because remember, they had a guest spending the night, and that guest was the stepson of Marty Smart. So maybe he wouldn't want to kill his own stepkid, because as we'll get into something else later, he actually cared deeply, even though he was a shitty husband and abusive and awful and all those things. He did very much love his stepkids. He gave up a lot to become their stepdad. We'll, we'll get into that later, too. But so... The fact that his own kin or whatever was in that room might have been what saved those two boys. Mm-hmm. On top of that, turns out, while Rick and Greg, probably too scared to say anything if they saw anything, said, we slept through it, heard nothing, don't know anything. Justin actually says, well, I didn't like witness it, but I mean, I, I did dream about it, which is kids speak for, I totally saw it, but I, I don't know that I saw it or right. I can't admit that I saw it because it's too awful. So police hypnotize him. Again, police also stop doing this because this is incredibly unreliable. People under hypnosis end up like adding details that have like they're embellished. They don't even know they're doing it, but they're just like saying things that they think people want to hear or they're adding details from some other thing in their life. But he basically tells police under hypnosis that he the night of the murders, he dreamt that a man that he came out of the room he was sleeping in and he saw two men fighting with Sue that one of the men had a pocket knife and a hammer and cut Sue's chest 
All right. So we also know that Sue was stabbed multiple times in like the chest and neck area. He then says in his dream that Tina came out of the bedroom to see what was going on. And one of the men picked Tina up and took her out the back door of the cabin. And then a short while later came back in without her. So he also in his dream witnessed Tina being abducted. Um, he describes the two men. They do a composite sketch. Nothing really comes of the sketch, but it should be noticed, noted that in this sketch, both men are wearing what appear to be sunglasses or highly tinted eyeglasses. And I don't know if you guys remember about the three-piece suits and the sunglasses in the bar. We got two men in a bar wearing sunglasses at night in a composite sketch with two dudes wearing sunglasses. I just, I'm going to say you guys know where I stand on who I think did this. I mean, I, I agree. I stand with you as well. But, but I, I thought that was fascinating. It also, again, could connect Marty if you were to say, like, why were these three boys unharmed? Well, one of them was his his stepson. Mm-hmm. One of them was his family, you know, and also maybe his stepson was scared of him. So if he saw something, Marty wasn't I'm worried. I'm sure his stepson was scared of him because he was known to be violent. I'm sure. Yeah. And so the case, again, goes cold. One thing that's interesting that's only ever brought up on Jensen and Holes, Vaughn, mm-hmm. was the fact that over the course of this investigation that should be all about Marty Smart and Bo Bobaday, um, but it's not for some reason. So they're like, we got nothing. We got nothing. Three different serial killers confessed to the Ketty murder. That's right. That's right. And they're all eventually like ruled out. So we've got Henry Lee Lucas, who, if anybody out there watched um, the true crime documentary, The Confession Killer on Netflix. He is the main subject of that. So he is like a notorious self-proclaimed serial killer who was active between um, 1960 and 1983. So the time does fit. He has been convicted or he was convicted for 11 murders, but has confessed to over 600. And in a time where sheriff's departments were happy to call cases closed instead of cold, they allowed him... Before, um, you know, before people were like, wait a minute, like he was actually in prison for this reason at this time of this murder. But at first they were like totally cool. Um, He confessed to the cabin 28 murders in Caddy, California. Um, Again, they were able to prove that he was not anywhere near the area. Um, Otis Toole, who was actually a friend and lover of Henry Lee Lucas and was convicted of six murders, but had confessed to over 100 he also constantly corroborated Henry Lee Lucas's confessions. Um, most famously, if you don't know, if you, this name doesn't sound familiar, Otis Tool confessed to, kidi- to killing Adam Walsh, the son of John Walsh, the host of America's Most Wanted, whose son was kidnapped from a Sears and then found dead later. Otis Tool con- like confessed to that murder. Oh my! But God. there was no evidence to prove it, or the evidence had gone missing that could prove it. And then he recanted, but he also famously confessed to crimes he didn't commit all the time and helped his lover, serial killer, Henry Lee Lucas, do the same. So those were, they were ruled out pretty quickly as it turned out. Like they just lied. They just said they killed everybody. Anybody who was murdered, they're like, we did it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's just put off that, that um, death row sentence to death. Cause I guess if you come out with more and they need to like prove it or look into it, they have to extend, they can't off you while they're openly investigating a, a crime you committed. Oh my god! That didn't work out forever. But then also in 1996, so this is like 15 years later, and the case is cold, another serial killer named Robert Joseph Silveria Jr., right. a.k.a. the boxcar killer, is arrested after 15 years of riding like the rails and killing fellow freight train passengers all over the U.S. 
He's finally arrested and he confessed to killing 28 people, including the Ketty Cabin murders. However, police are able to rule him out, even though there was train tracks that ran very close by. So even though his MO wasn't to leave the train to kill, he is a killer, a violent killer. And the train tracks were close, so it was possible. But it turns out that he was actually in prison at the time of the Ketty Cabin murders. So they rule him out. So they got people coming out of the woodwork confessing to this crime who are innocent and two really obviously guilty people that they're just not even looking into. Very bizarre. Yeah. And so the the case is cold until when, Vaughn? Sheriff Greg Hagward, after 30 years, he orders his detectives, and that's actually 2010. Sheriff Greg Hagwood, after 30 years, orders his detectives to pour through every bit of physical evidence in all of the case files at the Plumas County Sheriff's Department. Okay. And then and can I tell you a fun fact sure. about him from the Morbid podcast? So the current sheriff who ordered everyone to look into it was the same age as John and Dana and was friends with them. Dana Wingate was at his house the day before the murders. He was fired when he was just a lowly police officer for looking into things too much with this case. Then when he was reinstated, he was allowed to come back to the force but was forbidden to look into the Ketty Cabin murders as a condition of him being rehired. And it was only when he became sheriff that he then said, we're going to solve this fucking thing. So if that doesn't tell you that like a cover up and police corruption is involved, nothing will. Well, I think that's why it's a big reason it must be cold still as well. And he talks about in the, in that 18 month in the first 18 months, they got more information because they found the tapes and of the, person who called in and said you know i bet that's tina and uh, paul holes is like yeah i would be really interested to hear that because that's you want to like investigate whose voice that might be and would that be the guy that or the a person involved with the killing or somebody who just has intimate knowledge of the killers right. and who's responsible because like why if you were getting away with murder why would you call in and like tip your hand but you want to talk to that person exactly like why did and you they find that they find that in a sealed envelope in an evidence box that's never been opened. That's right. Like the recording, right? And it's like, why wouldn't you listen to that? They also said that, so we've got the confession, right, to the counselor who told police originally, and they were like, hearsay. But they also, again, threw this person's statement in an evidence box and never bothered to share it. Yeah. And so the new police find this. They, they go then, I think, re-interview the counselor who not only says, yes, this happened, but produces a letter that they also That's right. A letter that the counselor turned in. 16 days after the killings. And they got DNA from Marty off of that letter. So yeah. that was... You want to you wanna read like the main bit of the letter that everybody talks about and then we can talk about the context of it? Yes. Do you have that? No. Where'd it go? Okay, so right. They so they find this letter and it's to Marilyn Smart from Marty Smart and this is after Marty skipped town. Um and he says I've given oh, he says I've paid the price of your love and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through. Great. What else do you want? And I can see his handwriting so, actually. His the handwriting of an insane person. I'm just kidding. But, but what's crazy, like Vaughn, is like that is immediately like, wait, so now we've got him saying that he's paid the price with four people's exactly. lives. Exactly. Right there, you're like, that's it. He did damning. it. Another thing. In context, Paul Holes reads not the whole letter, but he kind of takes us for like back and he's like, I love your kids, but what about my kids? Right. You know, I gave up my four kids to come live with you and raise your children. And now that I have paid, you know, 
the price for your love. I've bought it with the four people's lives. It seems very clear that that's he's not talking about murdering four people. He's talking about the four lives like of his children that he basically mm-hmm. abandoned to be with her. So that does kind of that takes any of the I think the big papow confession right. out of that. Right. I still think Marty is definitely involved. And one other thing that Jensen and Holes mentioned that not one thing else that we looked into. So along with all of this information, right? So the confession that people are like, hearsay, don't worry about it. Throw it in a box. This confession letter, maybe. Throw it in a box. Um, the people calling about the school being Tina's before anyone knew anything about it. Throw it in a box. So the police right. really, they, they did a great job. But apparently, Marilyn Smart had told police from the beginning, like within days, that she was positive that her husband and his friend Bo were involved with this murder. She said the night of the murder, she came out after the men had apparently, but maybe before they went back to the bar, after, I'm not sure, it doesn't say, they were burning something in the yard. And a couple days after that, she found a bloody jacket in their basement. So you know how these cabins have these basements? Which she says she handed over to police, but the jacket was never logged into evidence, meaning whoever she gave that jacket to either got rid of it or lost it or just didn't take her seriously and like whatever. So she gave them a jacket covered in blood that was found in their basement a couple days after the murder and it was never logged into evidence. It's lost as far as anyone knows. And you mentioned the freezer where somebody unplugged the freezer that had all of the forensic evidence, which destroyed all of that. They never found the tape before. But one thing that was interesting that Jensen and Holes said was that so in 2018, the Plumas County Sheriff said that DNA had been found on a piece of tape near Sue's body that belonged to an unnamed living suspect. Yeah. So Marty and Bo died. Bo died in 1988 and Marty died in 2000. But they're saying that they have DNA evidence of a living, of a living to this day suspect. So what I'm thinking is, Let's talk theories. Mm-hmm. I think Marty and Bo did this, hundred percent, hundred percent. But I do think that the 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 sheriff, yeah, maybe someone in the FBI or in the corrupt crimes or you know organized crimes unit. I think there is evidence of their cover up that the new detectives have found through DNA evidence that didn't exist. Oh, that's I mean, there was no DNA in nineteen eighty one. So I think the six living suspects that the current sheriff who is investigating this claims to have. I think they are not the murderers, but the people that helped Marty and Bo get away with this murder for whatever reason that will hopefully come out. My favorite is the witness protection one because it's the only one that somehow it's still wrong, but it's not just like, I'm the sheriff and you're my pal. I'll let you kill four people. Right. And get away with it. No big deal. Because like, who does that? But if there is some, you know. FBI guy that's like, no, but I got to get this big dude in Chicago and in their like infinite wisdom that they think they have somehow that's more important than the lives of this, you know, poor family living in this cabin to catch this big mob boss somehow seems more important. Therefore we cannot jeopardize our witness. So we'll cover up a a heinous crime. He and his friend committed that to me rings plausible. I think so too. I really do. I mean, and I also, cause I, my mind reaches for was the sheriff involved in some way, you know, did he, but that's also doesn't, you know, necessarily answer why they called in certain units. And I, I agree with you on yeah. that. 
And also, and I, I forgot about Mar- I forgot about Marilyn, and I forgot that she was like, I'm pretty sure somebody was for them to ignore so many like leads. People. Yeah, yeah, so many all leads. pointing to the same people. Yeah, you know, because they investigated. Somebody put in a tip that Dana, the 17 year old friend of John um, Sharp, who was killed. That he had stolen drugs from drug dealers, right. and that maybe that was the motive. He stole LSD. Couldn't pro- yeah, couldn't prove that to be true. That's right. But they looked into it. Couldn't prove it. Couldn't find any mm-hmm. evidence to suggest it was true. So they dropped that angle. But like, there's multiple people coming forward, including his own wife, people who know about like the weird possible affair, and definitely the tension between John Sharp and Marty Smart, and the fact that Sue had told Marilyn to leave him. That there was like, and this is a rage-filled guy who's mentally unstable. Right. Just the fact that they never really like he passed a polygraph test, so they say. Right. You know, and he's cleared, and they leave town. They're never told to stick around for further questioning. It's like the day after. So I'm mostly just curious when they say living witnesses, we know that that excludes Marty and Bo or sorry, living suspects that excludes Marty and Bo, meaning whoever they think they can still charge with a crime, Mm. they're alive. And I think it has to do with a cover up because, you know, there is no statute of limitations on homicide. That's right. right. So I guess like conspiracy or um, I guess you could be an accomplice after the fact by right. helping someone get away with it. There's no, I that's wonder, no, you never get away with that. Here's a theory. I wonder, Justin Smart, the the kid, he was, um, he wasn't that old, but what was he, like 12 or something? I think he was 12, yeah. Yeah, he, maybe he did, I mean, he did later say that it wasn't a dream and he did see two men, but what if he mm-hmm. did witness it and what if he did, what if he ha- they had him help him or something, you know? Right. I or maybe know. he's the living. Maybe he's the living. That's suspect. what I was thinking. Like maybe well, they're like, come I mean, over here and tape this guy or something. Right. Because again, like they said, they they don't they know it couldn't have just been or it's very unlikely it was one person because of yeah. how much went on. I also think that one thing that we didn't really cover, and I think it's because nobody knows. But, you know, Marty Short saying that, like, I had to take Tina to get rid of her as a witness. You didn't have to abduct Tina. No. Oh, there were two witnesses that were killed and their bodies were left in the house. Right. That would be John and Dana. So why was Tina taken away? Exactly. And they think that, you know, or the what we heard on these podcasts, most specifically, again, I'm going to say Jensen and Holes. Check them out if you're interested in like solving details. Yeah. They make you feel like you can help them do it. Yeah. Yeah. They totally do. Um, But they say that, you know, him admitting to killing Sue to the counselor, Marty Smart, and then saying that he had to get rid of Tina because she was a witness, even though that doesn't jive with the crime scene and how they eliminated the other two witnesses yeah. is most likely because Tina was not immediately murdered. She was probably sexually assaulted and then murdered. And that's Very a lot upsetting. harder for somebody to admit to yeah. than just saying, like, I had to get rid of a witness. Not I chose to kidnap a 12-year-old girl, torture her, and then yeah. kill her. Here's an interesting uh, alley that uh, was brought up in the doc that I watched. And also in the Morbid uh, podcast, they talked about how when they were researching or when they were investigating possible people who might have taken... Tina, if it wasn't necessarily related to this murder, they found out that her teacher at the time had a weird obsession with her. Now, this is just batshit crazy, but absolutely true. He had a picture of her on his desk at the school, and they found pictures of her at his home. 
And Ugh. he, classmates and people had said that he had taken a, an interest in her. They questioned him. He's released. He leaves town. And then he's uh, arrested two years later for molesting another underage person. So I'm like, what the hell? Get the hell out of Caddy. Get out of Caddy. This I place mean, is... run, run from Caddy. But also, I mean, do we think it's possible that, you know, somehow Tina's abduction is unrelated to sue john and dana's murders because i feel like it's it can't be right like, well they did say he, that he, the teacher was at the bar that night i don't know i mean it's not completely oh God, out maybe of he's the live maybe he's the living suspect maybe but like let's say let's say he was at the bar and he heard these guys talking and maybe he was like i'm gonna follow these guys or maybe he made a deal with them i don't know it's very upsetting but oh then why gosh. but yeah, then like, why would why would mart marty smart confess confess to killing her exactly well and it's i mean that's where it does get tricky but what's interesting too is so they did they basically looked at the skull to determine whether or not tina had been held captive for years or and based on all the evidence like she was killed pretty much immediately after she was abducted so like within Mm -hmm. probably a couple of days which again i think supports the theory that the reason why she wasn't killed and left as because she was a witness is because whoever did this had nefarious plans for her Um, whether or not that's because the sexual assault of sue was interrupted and so they were like okay well this has gotten out of control now we had to kill this woman that the plan was to you know assault but then a 12 year old girl wanders in they go lock her in a trunk or whatever and like great we'll save that so upsetting people are so evil and horrible but it's just it's one of those things too that's just like hard to to understand how anyone could do any of this. It's really But also sad. just so hard to understand how the police could fuck this up so bad. Yeah, and I just feel bad for the living, the kids who survived, the two boys, Rick and Greg and, and Sheila. Sheila, who saw yeah. it. And you just, your heart goes out to them because that is just awful, traumatic. And there are horrible things that happen all the time, but this is just, it was so violent, so brutal. And so seemingly... Or no, this was a, a nice family, new to town, hadn't done wrong by, you know, any real standards yeah. to anyone. Like telling a battered woman that she should leave her husband is not doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And being teenagers and young kids, you know, having fun and playing with friends, going to parties and hitchhiking, you know, like none of that is, it, this doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Yeah. This family didn't, you know, didn't as far as we know have ties to organized crime other than maybe having a neighbor who had a mob boss stand on his couch you never know. and so it's just it's just wild and the fact that it's unsolved after all these years i mean if anybody out there is hearing this has been curious about this or you know has looked into the story and has any theories i would actually really love people to share yeah. if they have thoughts that we didn't mention or suspects we didn't mention or things we didn't know because i just cold cases i think always kind of grab us right yeah for sure Because they're the cases we all hear about and then they never get solved. Mm -hmm. And man, Reddit is blowing. It blows up still for this case. I was reading recently, they were talking, one alley was that maybe Marilyn had something to do with it. I'm like, I don't think so, but maybe she could be one of the lives, you know, the living suspects. Right. I mean, that's true because she's alive. And if they found her DNA in that house, you know, like, or fingerprints, like you don't know. And who knows? There's something interesting. Also, there was a 2008 documentary out there that we were unable to find, but it's talked about a lot in some of in different articles. It is nowhere to be found. And I wonder because they did, there were interviews of all the, all the people, Marilyn included. And I think Justin as well. I wonder, A, I wonder if somebody's creating a documentary about it. 
and has that footage now. Yeah. Or and B, maybe that was taken out of the because you you could find anything on the internet. I couldn't yeah, find like, it. Why can't anywhere. we find this? And it's referenced in everything that you read and everything you listen to. Mm-hmm. And we looked hard, guys. So we couldn't find it. So if anybody so has linked was, that, let us know. Maybe the police were like, we got to take this down because there's important evidence or information on this document. I don't know. But if anybody has like a, a bootleg copy of it, please send yeah. it to us. <laughs> yeah. We want to watch it. Anyway, we love you guys. We're going to continue to bring you our regular rom-crime episodes. Yeah. Um, along with some more cold cases because I just, I think they're the ones that really they stick with you because there are no answers. That's right. And even though the answers in horrible crimes are often unsatisfying, a crime that goes unsolved is just completely unacceptable. Yeah, agreed. Thanks for listening to you guys. We really appreciate it. Please DM us if you have any questions or ideas. And uh, God dang, we love doing this. So thank you. And we look so forward to talking to you next time. That's right. Bye. Bye. Bye.